Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are the God who speaks, the one who has not left us without a witness. And we, we ask that as we consider these words now, that we would be conscious of your Holy Spirit's guiding and nudging of us so that we might know you better. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I should say, um, good morning, um, wild olive branches, I suppose, this morning. Uh, if you were listening to what was going on in that reading, and we'll come to the, we'll come to the plants bit a little bit later on. It also um, is quite striking to me. I don't know why this is. I think I might have said it before, but quite often the children's songs we sing in church emphasize how big God is. That's something about how you see the world when you're small. You know, nothing's too big, big, big. How many songs do we have where we start doing things like this? But actually, it's a really good question for us all to ask. How big is our God? How great is he? What is the scope of who he is and what he has done? Uh, if you were in the evening service last week, I think a few of you were, we were thinking about some of the different sorts of gods that people worship. Uh, the fact that in the ancient world, there were many gods. You know, every nation and tribe pretty much had their own local gods. And there were gods of the sun and gods of the harvest and gods of the rain and the sea and all kinds of things. But that also in the modern world, it's true, isn't it? You know, there are many religions, many different gods that people worship. Uh, and even those people who are not religious at all have different gods, uh, different things which are particularly important in life, so important, in fact, that they are functioning like little gods. How big is our God, the Lord who we gather here to worship each week? That the God who speaks in the Bible, the God who the, the great story through the whole Bible is actually all about, is different, different to any other God, real or imagined, because he's the God of all things. That's what we claim, isn't it? That's what he claims. He's the God of heaven and earth. He's not local. He's not limited in any of the ways we might ascribe to different gods. He's the God of the nations. And yet, as we've heard over these last three weeks in Romans, He's the God who has revealed himself to a particular nation, a specific people. And he's revealed himself to the rest of the world through that particular nation, the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And though that nation may have rejected him and deserted him from time to time, if you've read your Old Testament, there has always remained a remnant, is the word that's sometimes used. It's here in Romans some of his people who remain faithful to him and trust him. And somehow it is through this one nation, often unfaithful though they may be, that a saviour will come to rescue God's people and bring that salvation to the world, to the ends of the earth. Jesus Christ, the one who is the true embodiment of everything Israel was called to be. Now all of this stuff, this, um, this deep and quite complex and amazing stuff, is being gathered together here by Paul in Romans 11. This chapter which it, it has got lots of strands feeding into it. In one sense, it's the end of, of, of what Paul has been saying about the good news of Jesus right from the start of the book of Romans. And uh, having seen in the last couple of chapters the ways in which God has brought his salvation to people through his own actions, that he's the one who's taken the initiative. Uh, we've seen in chapter 10 that it's through the good news of Jesus being passed on uh, that people are made righteous by God. And we sent out a load of Mark's Gospels last week to be passed on uh, to different people. We get to Romans chapter 11 now. And in a sense, Paul's got one big question he still wants to return to, to kind of draw all of this together. And it's the question of Israel. 
this nation chosen by God, and Israel's purpose, and Israel's future. Um, Because if many, perhaps even most of those who are now turning to Jesus in Paul's day, are Gentiles, people from other nations, uh, then what does this mean for God's specific people? Uh, These ones he called to be his people, starting with Abraham. What does it mean for all of those promises to Israel that we read about in the Old Testament? And we see this in verse 1. If you have a look, there we're still on page 1138. Paul says, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. And then we see a form of it later on in verse 11, when again he asks, um, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? In other words, are these people now beyond hope? And Paul says, not at all. And in conclusion, in verses 25 and 26, he is able to say with confidence, in this way, all Israel will be saved. We'll come back to that a little bit later. The question is, what are we supposed to learn from this great chapter? Uh, With all of those tricky questions. And we might add, why does it even matter? This is such a long time ago. What has this got to do with people like us here in Thurnby in 2023. I think a key reason that it matters is because what's going on here is that God's faithfulness is on trial uh, in these questions. The subtext to, is it all over now for Israel, is, well, does that mean that God has not done the things he said he would do? And if that is the case, we've got a problem, haven't we? So what does Paul say? First of all, verses 1 to 10, he says this, God has not rejected Israel, because their unbelief is not total. It's not total. First of all, he says, look at me. Look at Paul, verses 1 and 2. Has God rejected his people? No. Here I am. I'm a Jew, and I'm a believer in Jesus. And as you may know, if you know anything about the life of Paul, he's been quite a hard-hearted opponent of Jesus before he came to faith. How can we say God has given up on the Jews, Paul is saying, when he didn't give up on me? He took me, and he's using me as an apostle. Then he gives another example. He says, remember Elijah, uh, the great Old Testament prophet from back in the book of 1 Kings, who they would have known about well. Elijah, who you might remember the story, uh, he thought, verse 3, that God had abandoned Israel, that no one believed apart from him. I'm the only one left, Isaiah says slightly melodramatically in 1 Kings chapter 19, until God speaks to him and points out that actually there are another 7,000 faithful people still there in Israel by his grace. And what Paul is doing is subtly but clearly saying, look, God is just doing what he has always done. It was always all about faith anyway. If you look at the original promises he made to Abraham right back at the start of the story, it was always about faith, always about those in Israel who believed God's promises at the time of Elijah and those other 7,000 people. It's always how God works, looking for those who will trust him, even within his people. And Paul says, verse 5, it's still the case. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. God has always called and saved his people by grace. So verse 6, it cannot be based on works. And then in verses 7 to 10, he explains the reason Why so many in Israel at that time were apparently missing out on God's blessing and his salvation? Verse 7, what the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. Why? It's because they were looking in the wrong place. 
They were searching earnestly, but they were searching effectively within themselves by trying to prove themselves and establish their own righteousness by works, to use that phrase that Paul says here, rather than as a gift from God. I guess this is one of the places where uh, the rubber hits the road, well, at any, in any age, and certainly today. Because very sadly, it's still true of many people today, isn't it? And not only within Israel. You know, we often imagine, don't we, that, that the way in which people uh, reject God and harden themselves against him is by outright rebellion. You know, by breaking rules, by living for things like popularity and pleasure and success and stuff like that, not believing in God at all. That is one way that people can harden themselves against God. But there are many more who become equally hardened against the Lord by trying um, to be good, to be moral, to be religious, whatever it is. And again, very sadly, I'm, I'm not just talking here about people who follow other religions, but sometimes, tragically, about those who, I guess the phrase is, practice Christianity. Those who become very religious uh, and live trying to make sure they are moral or devout, but are seeking righteousness in their own efforts rather than coming to Jesus with empty hands for what he has to give. That's not the gospel. Don't go there. And the Old Testament quotes there illustrate the hardening of heart that it produces. So God has not rejected Israel because their unbelief is not total. That's the first thing. And then the second thing, in verses 11 to 24, Israel has not fallen beyond recovery because their unbelief is not final. This is not the end of the story. And this is where it does get a little bit densely packed. So I hope you're still with me. I want to say essentially there are three stages to what Paul describes here as he, as he kind of explains the, the economy of God's plan, how it all works out, his plan to bring salvation both to his people Israel and to all the nations. Stage one, verses 11 and 12, he says, Israel's transgression, their rejection of the gospel, has brought salvation to the Gentiles, to everyone else. That's stage one. Stage two, in verses 11 to 16, primarily, the salvation of the Gentiles then provokes envy among the Jews and brings salvation back to Israel. It's how God planned it, Paul is saying. And we get this picture from verse 24 of, of the olive trees and the, and the grafted branches. And then stage three, which comes after that in 25 to 32, by this great mystery that's been revealed in Jesus, God's amazing plan of salvation the whole of Israel will be saved as God has mercy on all his people. At which point Paul is so excited by the wonders of what God has done. You get that bit at the end of the chapter where he just bursts into a kind of psalm of praise and just starts singing basically. I don't think, I know he wrote it down, but I can't imagine that he wasn't also singing it. So it's not simple, all of this stuff, but there is much here that to help us appreciate, like Paul did, the amazing grace of God. So let's just back up into those three bits just one more time. Uh, stage one, first of all, 11 and 12, is where it's through Israel rejecting God that God brings salvation to the rest of the world. How does that work? Well, I don't know if you've ever read the book of Acts, because this is basically what we see happening again and again in Acts, in those stories of Peter and Paul and all the others. And what happens as those apostles travel around uh, the Roman Empire, you know, what we now call Turkey and, and Greece and other places, they get to a new town, don't they? And almost every time they start off by going to the synagogue. 
at the Jewish place of worship to proclaim the good news of Jesus. Some people believe sometimes, but many others are hard-hearted. Sometimes they even get violence. So what do the preachers do? Well, they head off into the other parts of the town, to the marketplaces, to the places where uh, people are, and they share the good news there. And they find they get a real hearing. And time and again, more and more people uh, of different nationalities respond to the grace of God in Christ. And so wonderfully, what happens is that one of the great themes of the Old Testament, one of the great promises of God, comes true as the church of God's people becomes multi-ethnic and international, starting from Pentecost in Acts 2. It's what Isaiah spoke about. Uh, I will make you a light for the nations. It's happening. As Jesus is rejected in the synagogues, his spirit is still at work gathering people in. Listen, uh, there may be some Jewish Christians here this morning. I'm, I'm not aware of any. But for most of us, this is our story, isn't it? This is what God has done for you and me here at what we might call the ends of the earth, or maybe Paul would probably call the back of beyond, somewhere on this strange island in the northern sea where it's freezing cold and there aren't any decent cities. Um, I want to say this is also a bit of a challenge to, to many of us as white British Christians. It is a reminder, which maybe we need, that the gospel did not start with us, isn't it? Uh, nor is the church in any sense ours. And that's probably quite an important thing for us to be reminded of as we live here in a place like Leicester, uh, of all places, uh, which should be making us think about how we might better live out this calling to be good news to all people in the place where we are. Uh, and there may be some searching questions we need to ask ourselves, and the churches, particularly Church of England churches of Leicestershire, need to ask themselves. Israel's unbelief, actually God is at work using it to bring salvation to the Gentiles. But then stage two, the Gentiles' faith makes Israel envious so that many Jews also return to the Lord. That is God's plan, verse 11. Who would have thought of that? Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. And just to say this is good envy. You know, it's not the kind of envy where you think, I wish I had my neighbor's car you know, or, you know, the, the kind of success which someone else has enjoyed. Uh, it's an envy which sees something good, which God desires all people to enjoy, and thinks, yes, I would like some of that. Um, essentially, what Paul is saying is, as Gentiles come to faith, uh, many Jews will see how God is fulfilling his Old Testament promises through these other nations, and will come to believe themselves. Again, there are some places in Acts where we can see hints of this already happening. And Paul says specifically to the Gentiles in verses 13 and 14 that he hopes his ministry among them will be having this effect on his own people, who he loves and cares about so much. Okay, well, so much for the theory. Um, it sounds an odd plan, doesn't it? And maybe Paul realizes that this is a lot to take in. And so this is where he reaches for a picture and the picture he comes up with is of an olive tree. Now, I'm not a horticultural expert, as some of you will be well aware. My wife would be laughing if she was here. She, she laughed at the fact that I could tell you who was in the England team, football or cricket, you know, 1986. But I just can't tell the difference between different plants or remember you know, what's supposed to be there and what's not supposed to be there. So forgive me for this bit if, um, if you are someone who is an expert in plants. But I understand that under certain circumstances, it is possible 
to reinvigorate an olive tree by grafting into it a new shoot. Uh, in this case, as Paul's describing it, it's a shoot from a wild olive plant being grafted into a cultivated olive tree. Uh, the new shoot is then supported through the roots of the existing tree. That's all the sap and all the nutrients and things that it needs. And the existing tree is enabled to produce fruit again uh, by the energy that comes from having this new ingrafted branch. Something like that. It's a vivid image though, isn't it? Uh, and Paul uses it both to help us understand how God is bringing his rescue to both Jews and Gentiles, but also to warn us not to be complacent or arrogant. You know, the olive tree is Israel, verse 18. The wild branch being grafted in is the nations, people like us. He's saying, partly, remember you Gentiles, your salvation, our salvation, has come through Israel. Uh, especially through Jesus, who has fulfilled all that Israel was called to be. Um, remember you Gentiles, that's you and me, you, that is the root you depend on. That is the only source of life that you have. So don't imagine that you are somehow special and important and God has rejected his own people. Now you've been grafted in where a dead branch needs replacing. Um, Jesus spoke, didn't speak about olives, he spoke about vines, didn't he? and said, I am the vine, you are the branches. It's a similar kind of idea that Paul is using here. Do not be arrogant, he says, verse 20, but tremble. This is what God has done. Um, not only that, remember that if a wild branch can be grafted in, verse 24, then how much more can a natural branch be grafted back into the plant where it belongs? And you see, that's the beauty of God's plan. Uh, so often we don't see it. But he is working this out to enable all peoples to hear the good news and his own people to be brought back to find life and hope in him. And so Paul finishes, and this is stage three, uh, verses 25 to 32. Don't be ignorant. Don't get conceited about what God is doing. None of us can boast or look down on others. As soon as a Christian starts to think, I must be good, special, whatever it is, because God has loved me, we've got the wrong end of the stick. And there is certainly no room for Gentile believers to look down on those who are Jewish. Because this is the way, Paul says, verse 26, by which all Israel will be saved. This is how God's plan of salvation works. Now, that particular phrase, all Israel will be saved, is much debated. And we can pick it up some more over coffee or later on if you'd like to. Uh, some people think that this is specifically a reference to how Jewish Christians uh, will all be included in God's family. Um, others think he's writing um, more specifically here about how all those who come to faith in Jesus Christ become part of Israel who are all saved. Um, that's what I lean towards, um, but I'm very conscious that there are others with bigger brains who've debated this more than me, so we can pick that one up later on. Of course, whichever one of those is, is um, what Paul means here, both of them are true anyway, so it's not something we need to worry about. But this is God's plan that he's been working out since before the creation of the world. And what I love here, as I said earlier on, is as we come to the end, at the end of this passage, which is one of the most theological and tricky passages I reckon in the whole New Testament, and if you find some of this a bit mind-bending, then so do I, and that may be good for us from time to time. But at the end of it, Paul just can't stop himself from bursting into praise. 
and worship. Verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Great doctrine produces worship. That's what's going on here. And I think not only should it bring us to praise the Lord, it should also remind us of some crucial things. You know, we often think of Romans as being one of those books which is kind of about the brain. You know, it's about thinking. And there's some truth in that. But, well, first of all, there should be no study or teaching of truth in church or anywhere else without worship. I think that's one of the reminders we get here. One of them should lead to the other. If it doesn't, it's just dry. You know, we're not here on a Sunday just to fill our heads with stuff. If that's all we do, then we're not doing it right. Um, but secondly, it works the other way around too. There should be no worship without truth. Um, Christians don't worship by emptying their minds, do they? Um, by meditating on visualizations that we conjure up. Uh, we worship by meditating on the truths of Scripture, the things that Jesus has said, which bring us to praise him with our hearts and with our voices. And thirdly, by way of encouragement, we do not need to understand everything in order to be able to praise the God who does understand everything. And Paul is not worried by the aspects of God's plan that he doesn't quite get. It's interesting, isn't it? He writes here how unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond all tracing. Who has known the mind of the Lord? There is a sense here that there is stuff that even Paul hasn't quite got his head around in terms of how God does these things. There is stuff that is beyond us. That's fine. It's not beyond Jesus. And so let us trust him and lift our voices in praise. Um, we are going to do that just now. It feels like the right thing to do. Why don't we begin by just reading out those last few verses of Romans chapter 11 together. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.